and so we try to, uh, in our Bible studies, in our Sundays, really just immerse ourselves in his word where we find actual like truth and a foundation on how we live. So today we are in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. If you want to turn there with me, Luke chapter 9, 51 through 56 is our text. Luke 9, 51 through 56. The title of the message is Overcoming Rejection. Overcoming reje Rejection. And so this is not a sermon, uh, a therapeutic, moralistic, deistic sermon. Uh, this is not to rub your back and make you feel better about yourself. Um, this is showing us in the life of Jesus how he dealt with rejection himself. And so Jesus sets up the standard for us. And so that is the topic for today in the scripture. So let's start in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you. To you be the glory and honor. I pray you would help me, help us. Lord, to be alert, that your word would take root in our hearts, that we would not sin against you. We pray that your word would take root and that our hearts will be fertile today. I pray for ears that cannot hear to hear. I pray for eyes that cannot see to see. And I even pray for mouths to be able to praise who are not praising. So, Lord, be with us today. Help me, help us to be preoccupied with your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. So how do you respond to rejection? Now, there could be many responses to how we respond to rejection. I've experienced anger at times when I felt rejected. I felt the need to be isolated. My feelings were hurt. Uh, yeah, a grown man like me can have his feelings hurt. <laughs> Sometimes I went into just being lonely or even embarrassed when you're rejected in front of others. Then you feel sadness and worst case scenario, you feel a sense of revenge. Our responses are the result of experiencing rejection. However, it should not be the determining factor in how we deal with it. We have decisions we have to make when rejection takes place. When angry, we choose to love and have peace. When wanting to isolate, we can choose to reach out. When feelings are hurt, we can choose not to go by how we feel. We can acknowledge that our hurts are actual hurts, but the deciding factor to how we deal with them is not how we feel, but what is true. When feeling lonely, we can choose to remember that God is with us. When embarrassed, we can choose to remember the embarrassment Jesus endured at the cross. When sad, we can choose joy. 
And when revenge feels like an option, we can do what Jesus did here in our text. Jesus is the model example on how to deal with rejection. 1 Peter 2.23 is one of those verses that God is definitely using to minister to me in this season where he says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus is the prime example of what to do when rejected. And the disciples are excellent examples of what not to do. Amen? In our text, Jesus gives us the answer to what to do when rejected. And I believe this portion of scripture truly serves as one that can train us for righteousness. So that we are not distracted from God's mission in the world. So Jesus didn't allow himself to be distracted here. Instead, he was fixed on what the Father sent him to do. I do believe, man, more than anything, the church is in desperate need of this focus today. With all the the distractions before us and all the feelings in us, we do need to remember the gospel. We need to set our faces to the mission of the glory of God in the world. And so for our outline for today... Point number one, the resolve in verses 51 through 52, the resolve. Then the rejection, verse 53, that's our second point, the rejection. And lastly, point number three, the rebuke, verse 54 through 56, the rebuke. On point number one, the resolve, the author Luke described to Theophilus when this particular event took place, it would happen when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up which was a euphemism for crucifixion. So it was kind of like an indirect description of his death. To be taken up meant that he would be crucified. So it's, you know, I would say right away it would be natural for us to avoid death, wouldn't it? If we knew that in going somewhere we would die. We would avoid going to where that would occur. But this was not so with Jesus. Luke describes for us the posture Jesus took when looking to the place where he would die. But not only where he would die, this would also be where he would face the wrath of God for his people. The struggle in the garden was not with him dying. You remember the story, right? Three times he asked the Lord, could there be another way? It wasn't the fact that he was going to die. It was the fact that he was going to drink from the cup of the wrath of Almighty God. So Jesus, even then, knowing that that would happen, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He was firmly determined to go to his death because this was the will of God. J.C. Rouse said about this portion of scripture, he said this. He knew full well, talking about Jesus, what was before him. The betrayal, the unjust trial, the mockery, the scourging. The crown of thorns, the spitting, the nails, the spear, the agony of the cross, all, all were doubtless spread before his mind's eye like a picture, but he never flinched for a moment from the work that he had undertaken. His heart was set on paying the price for our redemption and going even to the prison of the grave as our surety. He was full of tender love towards sinners It was the desire of his whole soul to procure to them salvation. And so, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. End quote. 
So Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, which meant that he was fixed firmly and established his decision to go where he would be crucified. He inwardly committed. He resolved within himself to go where no one could go and survive. It is for this reason Jesus was set to go to Jerusalem for his death, and he had to make preparations. Verse 52 of our text, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. And so sending messengers to provide resources was actually customary and respectful to do. You know, back in Puerto Rico where I used to live, we didn't have doors, we didn't even have windows. And so we used to go in each other's houses uninspectedly. Like, you know, I used to go to my uncle's house, just go in, sit on the couch and say, what's up, Theo, what's going on? <laughs> and it was no big deal. And, and now you can't go to someone's house, you have to plan, you know, you have to shoot them a text and let them know, hey, I'm coming over. Uh, sometimes me and Lynette don't do that, we'll show up. You know, it's just part of our culture, that's what we do. But in this time, when it, when it came to preparation and actually getting resources, they had to plan ahead. So they sent people ahead to plan for resources, to plan for his betrayal, his death, and even his resurrection. So Jesus would send messengers to a village where the Samaritan lives. Uh, who were the Samaritans? Who were they? We hear about them. And right now, uh, the Bible Museum has a display, a whole section where it explains to you the story of the Samaritans. Very uh, intriguing, actually. Shows you cultural things that they're actually doing today. I think there was, uh, I can't remember the number, like less than 2,000 of them left. So uh, there's a whole display in the Bible Museum if you ever want to see it. But they claim to be descendants of the northern Israeli tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And then after the Assyrians, uh, uh, destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722, there were Israelites that had mixed with the Syrians. And so mixing was not supposed to happen. You were supposed to marry within your own tribe, within your own people. The Samaritans called themselves keepers of the faith. And according to Ezra chapter 4, the Persians allowed the Jews to return from captivity. And it was said that residents of Samaria were rejected by the Jews when they asked to help rebuild the temple. And so Samaritans believed that the sanctuary where worship of God took place, uh, it stood at the, at, the mount, uh, at the bottom of Mount uh, Gerizim, where they thought Abraham actually took Isaac as a sacrifice. They thought something very special about Mount Gerizim. So the Samarit uh, Samaritans around 332 BC were overpowered by the Greeks, which caused them to reroute themselves to ancient Shechem, where they rebuilt a city and then it was destroyed by a Jewish king later. How do you think Samaritans would feel about Jewish people destroying their hometown that they just rebuilt? Then afterwards, in 9 AD, Josephus wrote about uh, Samaritan men who came in secretly to Jerusalem around midnight when it was customary to open the gates of the temple. And then these Samaritans scattered human bones in the entrances of the temple. How do you think Jews felt about that? They desecrated the temple. So can you see like the hostility that might have been taking place there? Now due to these situations, there was historic hostility, a significant difference regarding where the center of worship was. Was it in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? Was it in the north or was it in the south? And so the woman at the well interaction in John 4 gives us insight into this hostility 
between Jews and Samaritans. If you go to John chapter 4, verse 9, it reads, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? John 4, 9, and then it says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We don't rock with you. We don't fellowship. This is not allowed. This is not culturally acceptable. So they had a difference culturally, so much that they were hostile. Now, differences on where to worship is also seen in John chapter 4, the very same chapter, in verses 19 through 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, talking to Jesus. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So right there, you see a difference in where they were supposed to worship. But even with these issues, Jesus would go to make preparations in a Samaritan village. Why would Jesus go to where there was already hostility to, to Jews like himself? I think we need to remember where this happened. It happened close to the time Jesus was going to be crucified. This means that after encountering the Samaritan woman at the well, at the beginning of his ministry, this happened afterwards. What happened when he went with the woman at the well to her hometown. We see that again in John 4, 39-42, where it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is Samaritans. People that were hostile now see Jesus as the Savior of the world. It is possible that Jesus returns to where he was accepted. We don't know exactly where in Samaria, but it is possible that it was in the same town where he was accepted. There was acceptance of faith in Samaria, but what would happen now that Jesus would go back? There was rejection. That's our second point in verse 53, rejection. In verse 52, it says, He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Verse 53, But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So the Samaritans in that village rejected Christ. They didn't welcome him. What was the reason for their rejection? The text tells us it was because the face of Jesus was set towards Jerusalem. Now, what did it mean for Jesus to set his face? Well, those of y'all know, I'm really loving the Lexham English Bible. It's not in print yet, but it's only in digital. If you don't have it, go to your Lagos Bible software and get it. It's an amazing translation. I believe it captures exactly what it meant for him to set his face. In the Lexham English Bible, in Luke 9.53, it says it this way. And they did not welcome him because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He was determined. He was steadfast. He decided firmly to go to Jerusalem no matter what. Nothing was going to change his mind on where he would be crucified. Jesus didn't hold back on where he was in a debate between the Samaritans and the Jews. In fact, in John chapter 4, 22, he said to the woman, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So he didn't hold back on this debate. 
Jesus disagreed with the Samaritan view on where to worship. This was the cultural difference Jesus highlighted. However, as far as the spiritual, Jesus said in John 4, 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Though Jerusalem was prioritized, Jesus spoke of a time where location wouldn't matter. We're in that day today. But it did matter during his earthly ministry. It did matter that he would go to Jerusalem and set his face there because that is where sacrifices were made. So the Samaritans didn't welcome him. Jesus, uh, he disagreed with their view on where the center of worship was and rejection happened as a result. But one thing you have to notice here, Jesus didn't compromise his mission for acceptance. Instead, his face was set toward Jerusalem, which came with rejection while needing to prepare. He didn't preoccupy himself with what many call contextualizing his mission. He, he didn't change his content. He didn't change the truth about Jerusalem for the sake of relevance or gaining a crowd. Contextualization raises questions about how far a Christian may go in tailoring the language of scripture without losing the essence of the gospel message for the culture being reached. He didn't succumb to watering down the gospel or the truth. He didn't do it in John 4. Instead, he said, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. End of debate. So he was direct about the importance of Jerusalem being a part of his mission to be taken up. Good example about truth never needing to be compromised for the sake of relevance and outcome. Many people are doing it. Many people in the church planning movement are doing it. Well, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so blatant about Jesus being the son of God for the sake of Muslims, as an example. So maybe we, we shouldn't, you know, let's, let's avoid the son of God passages so that we can be Reaching some of the Muslim community. No, you need to tell them from the gate. Tell them and explain, unpack with them what it means. Jesus didn't do that here. He didn't compromise his mission or what the prophet said. The modern temptation of holding back truth would have significantly compromised the mission here because one would have had to set their face towards Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem where sacrifices were made. The fear of man would have had Jesus avoiding telling them the truth about Jerusalem, about his mission, about him being chosen. But because his face was set toward Jerusalem, they did not receive him when he needed to prepare to make salvation possible, even for them. They did not realize they rejected the one who would make their acceptance possible before God. And when we read through the Gospels, we often see the pattern of Jews rejecting Christ. But this is not a Jewish problem. We often look at the text and say, man, how, how could the Jews have done that? They're showing you what we do. This is not a Jewish problem. This is inherent in us all. There are similarities, in fact, here with how Jews rejected Jesus with how the Samaritans did it. In John 4, we saw how a whole village of Samaritans believed Jesus to be savior of the world. They were down. They were like, yeah, we're down with that. Stay with us for two days. Then in our text, they reject him. 
because his face was set towards Jerusalem. What happened when Jesus entered Jerusalem? He was celebrated. Celebrated like they, they loved on Christ. What happened later? They rejected him. They jeered at him. The same people. Then what happened with the, 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 the disciples in our text later on? What did they do? They left them at his arrest. They rejected him. Peter rejected him three times. It's a human problem. Not a Jewish one, not a Samaritan one, not a husband one, not a wife one. Hello? Don't look to your husband or wife right now. <laughs> look to yourself. You are the problem. We have a problem with God. This is a human problem. This highlights the reality of the human condition when it comes to salvation. No matter if you're Jewish, Samaritan, Gentile, Greek, black, white, Spanish, Asian, if I forgot you, my bad. We all have done the same thing. We would all be the ones who hear the word and receive it with joy, but have no root. Samaritans here are just revealing what we all would have done. Rejection, saints, is our default when it comes to salvation. Samaritans had it worse in that culturally there was already a schism between uh, the Jews, which Jesus was and his disciples was. Historically and presently in our text, there was hostility and Jesus uh, being fixed on Jerusalem did not preoccupy himself with being accepted. On the contrary, he was on mission, accepted already by the father. So if there was cultural hostility between Jews and Samaritans, why would Jesus go through Samaria? Why would he set camp there where there was already hostility? Well, so, uh, Samaria lay between his northern ministry, like, and then you have Samaria, and then Jerusalem in the south. So it was easiest to go right through Samaria, right? And so it's kind of like if you knew there was a hood, you would go around the hood just to get, because you don't want, you know, you don't want problems, right? You would do that. I know people that do that. They just, nah, that's the hood spot. We need to go around that to get to where we go. Jesus went right in. But there was already cultural hostility and problems. So traveling-wise and practically, it would be easier. The second reason is more conjecture, but maybe it was because Jesus would be rejected to show that this was not a Jewish and Samaritan problem. This situation shows us that the disciples did not learn from the previous situation that they were called to be like a child, if you remember our text. Instead of taking matters into their own hands, they should have relied on Christ when rejected. Instead of taking rejection personally, they should have trusted that Jesus knew what he was doing. How did they respond to rejection? They responded in such a way that it called for Jesus to rebuke them. They were wrong the way they responded. Remember that Jesus sent messengers of, uh, ahead of him to prepare what would happen in Jerusalem. Here we see a passion by the disciples who saw Jesus rejected to punish Samaritans for their rejection. But later we see these same disciples abandoning him. <laughs> Instead of trusting Jesus at his arrest, they will leave him. In the city of Jerusalem where there were priests and sacrifices, they would reject the greatest sacrifice ever made. Saints, we should be very careful about looking at the disciples and thinking, why don't they get it? We have done the very same thing. 
The disciples had a habit of failing to learn their lesson. They should have, again, remembered the lesson of who is the greatest, but they will struggle with pride and an exalted view of themselves, which Jesus rebuked them for. And the last point, the rebuke in verses 54 through 56, verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Verse 54, and when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Luke mentions two disciples who were there with Peter when he was transfigured. Now remember, they were there. They saw the face of Jesus altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Elijah and Moses were there. And then he heard the voice from the Father affirming Christ. Now, from seeing that picture, they're seeing the Samaritans rejecting Jesus, who they saw as the chosen one, the Son of God. Can you imagine that? That power display happening and then this powerful person that we saw glorified, affirmed by the Father, Elijah and Moses, now going to an unclean people like the Samaritans and they're totally disrespecting him. How do you think you would feel? James and John saw the rejection and being Jews, they have even struggled culturally in that they felt a great sense of disrespect since Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. It is interesting that Luke pointed out who would reject Jesus in this very same chapter. If you go back to verse 22, Jesus told them who would reject him. He didn't speak of the Samaritans, but of those in Jerusalem who were elders, chief priests, and scribes. No mention of Samaritans. All offices that tended to the things of God. And here they wanted to send down fire from heaven to consume Samaritans for their rejection. Yet, at his arrest, they were nowhere to be found. You know how it is. You feel, you, you, you're the man, or you're the woman. You know, and, and you, you know, your chest is out and you're feeling like bold. Don't you have times of personal revival and then you're telling other people about their problems and you can't even see your own because you're righteous, you're holy, you're living right. Then the next day, God has a habit of showing you your sin, your problems. Where's the boldness? Yeah, so and so, I don't know why they continue to do what they do. Yeah, you know, so-and-so, I don't even know if I want them at the crib anymore. Like, they just keep tripping, man. I'm not about that life. Look in the mirror of God's word. That's why people don't like reading it. It bothers people. It bothers me. Oh, you got to be patient and kind to those who aren't being patient. And what are you talking about? Be patient and kind to people. Have you... Did you see how this person came off? Do you know what this person is saying? I got a right to defend myself. Though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. This Christian life sometimes feels like the life of, of being a doormat. Where people are stepping all over you, saying things and doing things to you that are unjust. But God has called us to trust and trust ourselves to the one who judges justly Amen. like Christ did. 
So the church can't be a place of vengeance or revenge. It has to be a place where we should be more like Christ, who though he was reviled, did not revile in return. The disciples didn't get this. As indignant as they were here, where would they be when Jesus would be taken up? They would not be there. This is what happens when someone overestimates themselves in the kingdom of God. By overestimating, I mean what Paul said in Romans 12, 3, where he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Maybe your problem is you think you're all that. Maybe you think too much of yourself. You know, I don't watch TV anymore, but I remember watching, um, I, I forgot what that show is, where people will come up and try out singing. Um, American Idol, whatever, one of those. I, I could not understand people that will go up and could not sing. Like, aren't you conscious that you don't know that you're not good? <laughs> Seriously. You're not good. You can't sing. Why is it that you're so blind to, not just inability, you have no skill <laughs> at all. You shouldn't even talk, bro. Just do something. <laughs> You know, but what's, what's wrong? Where's the self-awareness? Why can't they see before a judge has to tell them to see that they're not any good? I think we could be that blind about ourselves. We could think we're all this and I'm good at that or whatever. No, no, no. Look in the mirror. Look in the context of community. What is the community of God saying? That's why people who want to get into pastoral ministry right away, I tell them, hey, let the body tell you that you're called. Let other people tell you that you're called. Because maybe you're not. I never thought I was good at preaching. I still don't think I'm that good. Because I know I measure myself with the greats. And see Charles Spurgeon's sermons, like I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I, I'm not there yet. Piper and others in the body, R.C. Sproul, others that I see that I, and they put me in check and say, y'all, I still need a lot of work. That's a good place to be, saint. That's where the disciples should have been. We rejected him too, or are going to, and have a, a knack to do it. Instead of looking at the Samaritans and saying, we need to burn them all. Paul says later in Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. In other words, what did Jesus say before this? Be like a child. God has been drilling this in me for the past two weeks. Think with sober judgment. Associate with the low. Never be wise in your own sight. Instead of taking personally the rejection they face, they should have remembered the mission before them. So how do we respond to rejection? And what do we do when angry, isolated, feelings are hurt, or we feel lonely, embarrassed, sadness, or are attempted to take revenge on someone? What are we to do? 
later when Jesus speaks of the woes of cities that rejected him, he says in Luke 10, 16, later on, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So by taking something personally, I mean thinking of your offense and your need to protect yourself and going on the offensive towards others. Jesus did not do this. Jesus didn't think in terms of self-preservation. If he did, we would have seen him not setting his face towards Jerusalem while in front of the Samaritans who believed Mount Gerizim was where it once should be focused. And maybe he would have retaliated in calling down fire from heaven and burning everybody, including the disciples. Jesus didn't think in terms of retaliation. If he did, fire from heaven would have been a good idea. Jesus could have done away with them in their rejection of him, but he was focused on the mission before him. His gaze was not set anywhere except where he would provide atonement for his people. His disciples had a different focus. Their distraction and mistake came from taking the rejection by the Samaritans personally. And it came from an exalted view of themselves. If one thinks highly of themselves and they experience rejection with a high view of themselves, fire from heaven would be a good idea. They said, Lord, do you want us? Who are you? Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Where, the, where would the disciples get this idea of calling down fire from heaven? That's pretty creative. Actually, it isn't. It isn't new. Remember when Elijah called down fire from heaven? Do you know he did that more than once? In 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah called down fire from heaven twice to consume armies. James and John saw Elijah when Jesus was transfigured. They saw Elijah there. Maybe that's where they got the idea. As a matter of fact, in some earlier manuscripts, it actually noted and added the fact that uh, when they asked for fire to come down and consume them, some early manuscripts added just as Elijah did. Well, this was in the mind of scribes. It might have been in the mind of the disciples here in our text. With the rejection they faced by Samaritans who were at odds with them culturally and religiously, they asked Jesus if he wanted them to tell fire from heaven to come down and consume them. They said, Lord, do you want us? But who are you? They thought themselves so powerful that they could call down fire from heaven. They forgot. Do not think of yourself more highly than you are, but judge soberly. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So they took rejection personally. Jesus didn't. He set his face towards Jerusalem because he was on mission. This is important. You're going to be rejected by somebody here at our church. Guaranteed. What are you going to do? Could Jesus have given them the authority to call down fire from heaven? Yes. Did they deserve fire from heaven? Yes. But when it came to the arrest of Jesus and the disciples tried to defend themselves, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 52 to 54, put your sword back to its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. 
Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He had priorities. His priority to fulfill the mission of the father trumped how he might have felt about their rejection. He was focused, fixed, determined to go to Jerusalem where he would be taken up a great example for us. So saying, have you wanted to respond as the disciples did in our text? Have you had imaginations of others and wanting harm on them and feeling a sense of mistreatment and rejection where it led you to want even fire from heaven to consume them? What should you do when rejected? Do what Jesus did. He set his face towards the mission of God, the place where he would do the Father's will where he would pay for sin. His mission wasn't revenge or to take people out who rejected him. It was to bring forgiveness for sinners who rejected and despised him. This is why he rebuked his disciples. In verse 55 and 56, he turned and rebuked them, and he went on to another village. So in closing, Jesus strongly disapproved of what they asked him to do with the Samaritans. They wanted to punish them for their rejection, but Jesus came to take on the punishment for their rejection and the rejection the disciples would display later. His death was the mission and he would not turn away from it. He was dedicated. He was in love. Love drove Jesus to the cross. And by the way, you weren't the first one on the list. Oh, he loves me and no doubt he does. But his perseverance at the cross first was his love for the Father. He loved the Father so much that he paid a price. And as a result, the love of God is poured out on us. It's the same with us here today. In order to properly love each other, we should be loving God first. Is the mission of God enough to keep you focused on showing grace even to those who reject and despise you? It was enough for Christ. It should be enough for us. So Jesus, when rejected here, went to another village, most likely in the same region before his entry into Jerusalem. And he didn't allow the rejection to poison his heart towards those who were considered unclean and outsiders of the covenant. He continued to go to where he needed to die, not just for Jew but also for Gentile, for all people. If we're all honest, we would admit that there were times that we wanted the fire to come down on others or, you know, some other form of punishment on others. We can be very creative, can't we? But it's important to remember who we are apart from God. God is holy, and because we sinned against him, We deserve to be burned up in flames for sinning against a holy, infinite, and just God. We deserve this. Everyone here has fallen short to the point of deserving God's infinite, holy, and just wrath. Left to ourselves, fire from heaven would have consumed us. We deserve that. But God sent his son, who took upon what we deserved. He did what we could not do. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And for our sake, he made him, the father made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Saints, thankfully, God did not express his wrath towards us, but instead gave his only son for us. The wrath of God consumed Jesus so much that he died. But because he was sinless, death could not hold him. <laughs> he will be raised so that we will be declared righteous. This happens because those who follow him are now accredited his righteousness. We also will be raised. So God looks at us who believe as righteous and Fire from heaven will not and cannot consume us. But the sun from heaven cherishes us now. And so apart from faith in the son of God, we are all deserving of fire. And because of Jesus, saints, we can entrust ourselves. Even when feeling rejected and despised as he did. Instead of fire from heaven coming down and consume those who deserved it. The Father will send his only Son for those who didn't deserve it. We should desire this for everyone, even those who reject and despise us. Have you been bound by bitterness? Have you been bound by unforgiveness? Do you go to bed wondering or angry at the person who offended you? Have you been losing sleep? Have you been planning in your mind on how to pay back someone who did you wrong? Look in the book. Look in the book and see that if that was the case with Christ, we would not be here today. We can overcome anger, isolation, hurt feelings, loneliness, embarrassment, sadness, and we don't have to go to revenge. We go to what Jesus did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I would encourage you, Saint, if you're here today, and you, I, I get it, you know, people do wrong, people say wrong things. Don't spend a lot of time on that. Look in the book. Look in the book, meditate upon his grace and his mercy so that even in the midst of being talked about or betrayed, whatever the case is, you can do good to those who are persecuting you. So, Lord, I pray that this example you set in our passage would help us to be more like you, that your grace will compel us to good works. God, by ourselves, we will be stuck in our offense and bitterness, but because of Christ and the Holy Spirit work in us, we can be more like you. Help our church with one voice say thank you for your grace, and with one voice say we even love our enemies and we will do good to those.